From the island in the desert, it's Life Punctuated at Story Story Night, where you hear true stories on a theme recorded live on stage and without notes from Boise, Idaho. I'm your host, Jody Eichelberger. On this podcast, our featured storytellers exclaim themselves during our season inspired by punctuation marks. Held on January 23rd, we celebrated our theme of the ampersand by featuring storytellers in Boise and Idaho Falls. From Jump in Boise, we have Eric Yankowski and Peg Doherty. From the MC Theater in Idaho Falls, we have Randy L. Teton and Grayson Cullen. Now for stories with a real point, it's story time. Eric Yankowski. My hands are scalding as I'm running from the sanitizer to the cupboards. The plates come out boiling hot and I wrap them up in a towel. But even wrapped in a towel, if I miss a single step in this transit, I'll get a blister on my palms and that'll be a deal breaker for canoeing after breakfast. Tom Petty is blaring on the boom box out in the mess hall. I'm running back and forth between the cupboards and the sanitizer. Mike is mopping the floors and Eric is scraping the scraps of the toast and bits of peanut butter into this cauldron of coffee and other discards from breakfast that we euphemistically refer to as the bucket of happiness. It's 1995, summer camp at Camp Niati, and this is the highlight of my summer. It's, the, it's a week of boys camp where we get to go explore in the woods, hiking and canoeing and shooting and swimming, and it's, uh, it's this time to be part of a family away from home. We've got these incredible counselors who for many of us campers are our first mentors that aren't teachers or parents. These 18, 19-year-old boys are unguarded in the woods, and they're telling us stories of life lessons and love lost, and they captivate our attention around the campfire. And we just look up to them. These guys are gods. Rumor is that uh, uh, one of them was able to navigate all the way across the lake uh, using his canoe, find the girls' camp on the other side, and make out with a girl. (laughs) So I've known ever since I was eight. I want to be a counselor, and I'm super excited this summer because I'm a cookie. It's the first step after being a camper to become a counselor. I want to be a mentor just like them. And the cookies, we, we exchange uh, a little bit of grunt work for a lot of freedom. We don't have to pay the fees of going to camps where our parents are super happy, and we don't have the schedule of the campers, so we can go uh, ride in the canoes or go rifle shooting anytime that we want. It's amazing. Above the junior counselors are, uh, above the cookies are the junior counselors. And these guys are the badasses of camp. The junior counselors could drive their own cars to camp. They didn't have to rely on their parents. They had facial hair. <laughs> and they had really cool knives that they could use to shave their facial hair, just like in Crocodile Dundee. But these guys were a little bit scary. It was like, uh, you know, you take a little bit of testosterone and uh, the occasional alcohol, and it mixes into uh, bad decisions and amazing stories. <laughs> the counselors above the junior counselors were in charge of keeping cabins of eight kids alive. They'd uh, bring them from meals to the different activities at camp. And uh, these, you know, young boys, 18-year-old guys would uh, they'd be the caretakers for little kids who were away from home. So imagine an 18-year-old taking care of uh, uh, 8-year-olds who were uh, homesick and uh, wanted their parents. These guys were amazing caretakers. So 
keeping the kids alive at camp was actually a pretty difficult thing to do because the junior counselors were always uh, instigating raids between the different cabins. So I remember last summer, one of the junior counselors showed me how to take a smoke bomb and put it on the windowsill of one of the one-room cabins and close the slat on the outside so all the smoke goes in and all of the campers come out. And there you are waiting with your pillows and thwack the Forest would just erupt into laughter and pillow fighting thwackiness, and it was hilarious for the most part. This is where you saw the good mentorship play out. The, the good camp counselors would show their, their campers how to uh, make formation around their weakest members and find higher ground, and the, the bad mentors, they would cut corners. You'd have kids who'd put candy bars in the bottom of their pillowcases, and if you took a pillowcase with a candy bar to the side, that leaves a welt. And this would instigate an arms race amongst the other campers. So the kid that gets hit with the candy bar might put a, a baseball on the bottom of his pillowcase. And at the next raid, you can see who's got the baseball, because just boom, boom, boom. There's just kids dropping around him. And this is against the Geneva Conventions of camp, and war criminals will be punished. And the punishment is rained down by the junior counselors. So the baseball kid, he got dragged out into the uh, far end of the woods where there's this swamp, and he got tossed into the swamp. And I know what you're thinking. What's little swamp water compared to a baseball to the face, right? Well, this swamp is full of leeches. So the camper comes out covered in leeches, and the junior counselors can't very well bring a camperback that's completely covered in leeches, so they do them the favor of removing those leeches. And the easiest way to do that is to pee on them. <laughs> These guys are brilliant, and you really can't fault their creativity. <laughs> the night before, the junior counselors raided the cookie cabin where I'm asleep, or at least I'm pretending to be so, and they're, they're after Mike, who had done a bad job of cleaning the bathrooms the day before. And they, they run and they duct tape him down to his bunk, and they flip the uh, bunk bed upside down so he was at the bottom and now he's at the top, and they toss the upper bunk mate onto the floor during this inversion. And now Mike's stuck upside down in a duct tape cocoon, and he's wriggling around trying to get out, and he's kind of a heavier fellow. So the duct tape doesn't hold for very long. You hear this rip, rip, and then thud as he lands into the springs of the inverted mattress. And while this is happening, I'm pretending to be asleep because I don't want any of this. And uh, so far, I've stayed safe at camp. And I don't know if it's because I've kept a low profile, because I've been around the block and I know what goes on at camp, or if it's because of the ugly stick, which I sleep with. The ugly stick is this gnarled, charred piece of wood that I've carved the words ugly stick into the side of. And I use it as a deterrent when I'm at my most vulnerable. But I know it's a, it's a stopgap measure. If I ever actually have to hit a junior counselor with the ugly stick, I know I'm destined for the swamp. The next day at lunch, I'm mopping up afterwards, and I see a pack of junior counselors running through the mess hall straight at me, and they're shouting about Eric, and my heart drops. And then they rush past, and I remember, there's another Eric. <laughs> and I'm super thankful that I can return to my work unmolested. And as I'm finishing up the, the mopping, I open up the walk-in freezer to get the last little bit that's in there, and there he is, the other Eric. 
and he's sitting on top of this five-gallon pail of pickles. It's bright green, and he's sitting there with these sad little puffs of condensed breath coming out of his mouth, seemingly saying, don't do it. But what happens next is automatic. I turn to the mess hall and I yell, guys, he's in the freezer. And a second later, they're dragging him out of the mess hall, and he's grabbing onto tables and chairs, uh, trying to break free, but there's too many of them, and they're too fast, and they're pulling him out of the mess hall. I'm following a short distance behind to see what's going to happen, and they drag him down to the waterfront, and they pour the bucket of happiness all over him, hoist him on their shoulders, and carry him out to the dock, and toss him into the lake where before Eric is able to surface, there's a sheen of oil and peanut butter and toast on top of the water, that he's forced to suffer the indignity of swimming through the second time. And as he's crawling out of the water, I can see that he's coming for me next. <laughs> and I'm like, balls. I, I did the right thing, right? If I, if I didn't rat him out, then the junior counselors would figure that out, and I'd be going for the swamp. But by ratting him out, I, th I thought I was choosing between Eric or the junior counselors, but from his perspective, now it's clear that it's the junior counselors and me that are the bad guys. I'm complicit. I did a bad thing. Things got a little out of control at camp that summer, and a couple weeks later, I was being interviewed by the police. And they wanted to know, did, did Steve just use that knife to shave or did he threaten Mike in the bathroom? And were they tickling Eric to make him let go of those chairs or were they, were they hitting him? And during the interrogation, I can only think of two things. One is how quickly I ratted out Eric and how I deserved to go to prison. <laughs> and two, if I do end up there, I'll be moderately advanced in my ability to make makeshift weapons in a short amount of time. <laughs> Fortunately, I didn't go to prison that summer, and they cleaned up camp in the years that followed, including making a rule about the junior counselors not being able to bring duct tape. <laughs> I, never, I never fulfilled my dream of becoming a counselor. I got distracted by a, a career in science and 22 years later, I'm a professor, and I never gave up the dream of being a good mentor, though. And I, and I try to be a good mentor to my students, both in my lab and in my classroom. But I worry about the things that are automatic. Even though we've traded our campfires for PowerPoint and the cabins for classrooms, I worry about the moments, like in the freezer with Eric, I worry about times when we're complicit in a culture of abuse before we know it's too late. Who do we condemn to the bucket of happiness when we're not actively working to clean it? Thank you. Randy L. Okay, so my name is Randy L. Hido Teton. I am a member of the Shoshone Bannock Tribes of Fort Hall, Idaho. And I served as the model for the United States Mint Native American Golden Dollar called the Sacagawea Golden Dollar Coin. I was in my early 20s. I was attending the University of New Mexico College in Albuquerque. And while I was there, I got a call from my mother who was living in Santa Fe, New Mexico, working at the local Indian Museum. 
And there was this competition that was going on with the United States Mint where they chose a certain amount of artists from around the nation. And this artist was from Santa Fe, New Mexico, and she was searching for a Shoshone woman. Well, that led her to the Indian Museum, and she was able to speak to my mother. And this is in the times when everyone carried photos in their wallets. And, and not she on was the able, phone. when asked by the artist, do you have daughters? And she said yes. And she took out three photos of her daughters, including myself. And immediately, the artist said, I would like her. And so that's where my story begins. And my mother called me in my dorm. And she says, there's a lady here that would like to have you be her model. And the first thought that came to mind was that I was not 100 pounds and I'm not six feet tall. Because back then, uh, you know, we had um, a lot of the, uh, the image of women was different back then um, as it was today. And so I asked her, well, what is it for? And she said it's for a project for the United States Mint. And I said, okay, what else? And she says, well, it's for uh, Sacagawea. And if some of you don't know, Sacagawea is from my tribe, the Shoshone tribe, and she's from Salmon, Idaho. So Sacagawea, what made her famous is that she actually served as the white flag of peace with the Lewis and Clark expedition. Not only did she serve as a white flag of peace, but she also served as a young leader and a young mother. She was in her, she's about 13 or 14 years old, and she had a baby on her back. Her story is an amazing story, and I don't have all the time to tell you tonight, but what was special was that I was able to share our Native American perspective with this artist that was chosen by the United States Mint. And when I went to model for her in Santa Fe, we talked about what, what I would wear and we wanted to make sure that we were culturally accurate. And so Glenna was able to get a deerskin dress from a local gallery and it was delivered in a trash bag. And being that I was going to school for Native American studies and museum studies, I was appalled because this beautiful deerskin dress that's aged 200 years old was delivered in a black trash bag. Uh, my next worry was, is it gonna fit? And it did. And I knew at that point that this felt right about doing this modeling shoot. I've never modeled before, maybe a little bit for commercials, but not like to this extent. And we were able to, I braided my hair in two braids, like our Shoshone women do and our Bannock women. And we were able to capture the image of what Sacagawea may have looked. But we're missing something. We are missing a baby. The baby that she carried with her was about six to 10 months old. And so the artist had a doll in her studio and she says, pick it up and let's put it on my back. So I picked it up and I put it on my back and I replicated what we would have done to carry our baby. And 
a year goes by from that day that I modeled and I did not hear a peep from the artist. So I had no idea what was going on. And I get a call from the United States Mint director, Philip Dill, who served in the Clinton administration. And he said, congratulations, you're in the top 10, you and Glenna. And Glenna's the artist. I was shocked. I had a lot of mixed emotions going in through my head because I'm a college student. And then he said, we are going to place the images on the United States Mint.gov website. And this is going to be the first time that America will be able to vote on the top image. And that to me was awesome because the first thought that came to my head was, I'm going to be on the website. <laughs> awesome. And this is a time when we all didn't have laptops. We all didn't have the phones. We had pagers. And so he said, they're going to appear on the web at 6 o'clock Eastern time, which was 4 o'clock Mountain time. So you can imagine I did not sleep all night. And I went to the local computer pod at University of New Mexico. I was the only one in there. I logged on. And I was able to look at all the images. Out of all the images, nine of them were of me. And I never seen them before. And it was an amazing feeling because it was like looking in a mirror. The artist did an amazing job. But this coin is not about Randiel. This coin is about Sacagawea and her plight of survival and Nobody believed me. And when I said, yeah, I model for this coin that's going to replace the Susan B. Anthony, they said, what? They're doing what? Nobody believed me. So I had to print 50 to 100 pages just to show my friends. <laughs> and so I called my grandma, who was, here, who was living in Idaho. And she didn't believe me. My aunts and uncles didn't believe me because Everybody, I couldn't say nothing a year earlier because it was a highly confidential project. So, you know, you can imagine everything that was going through my mind and how excited I was. And I wanted to share the news with the world, but I really couldn't. So I sent all my printed images back home and they were all able to see it. And from that point on, it was a whirlwind of events. And in 1999, I was able to attend an unveiling ceremony at the White House on the grass. And President Clinton was supposed to be the moderator. And he wasn't able to be there. He was in Puerto Rico. And so First Lady Hillary Clinton was the moderator. And I was able to spend the day with her, had tea, had some good conversations about the tribe and who I was. And it was an amazing day. And I was dressed in my deerskin dress that my grandmother beaded. And we wanted to make sure that we were going to be at this ceremony and I was wearing the appropriate clothing of my people. And so I was dressed at the Capitol and I was able to get on the stage and, and it was an amazing feeling. But what happened at that unveiling ceremony was amazing. 
they dropped down a big black robe and I was able to see the coin that you all see today. And they called up my name and I was able to go up there with all of the official dignitaries along with Hillary and, the, and Glenna Goodacre and we were able to share it with the world. And then a couple months, uh, the coin officially came out to the public and guess where it came out? It was introduced uh, to the public in Walmart. <laughs> and that's cool because the doll that I placed on my back was actually a doll from Walmart. <laughs> Nobody knows that. But Glenna did an amazing job because she made that baby look like a real Shoshone baby. And it, the feeling was awesome. Although, a few years later, um, after I did the marketing and helped with the United States Mint, I learned that there was a lot of other products that had my face and uh, my image, my facial characteristics, and uh, I did not receive a penny from um, any of those products. I learned um, some hard lessons. Nobody tells you how to act, how to manage your money, how to manage contracts, uh, you know, when your face is placed on a currency. It's something that, um, you know, I've, no, one, no one can mentor me about the, my experience. And here I am today. I have three children. I work just like everybody else, and I'm very proud to work for my tribe. I work as the public affairs manager for the Shoshone-Bannock tribes in Fort Hall. And I feel really good about things, but, you know, things, I are also, I'm very concerned as well because the history of Sacagawea is being told in a good way, in a good light, but there's also been some things that I had to endure uh, on a personal level. And, um, but I'm here today and I'm happy to share my story and I know I only have 10 minutes and I'm not sure where I'm at on my minutes, um, but I'm very happy to be here in Idaho Falls and I was in Boise yesterday so um, this is my home. I was never, I'm not going anywhere and I'm raising my children here. So I'm very happy to be here and share my story with everybody. So thank you. Please welcome to the stage, Peg Doherty. So when Idaho Women Lawyers asked me to tell a story about mentorship, I thought, I quickly said yes. And I thought, this is not gonna be hard. After all, I have had the benefit of many tremendous mentors in my life who have paved the way for me. And throughout my career, I have tried to be a good mentor for others. And then when I heard that the punctuation theme of the night was the ampersand, I thought, perfect, because mentorship is in large part about making connections. But the story I want to tell you tonight is more about how I came to believe that easing the way for others is important and imperative. I come from a big Irish Catholic family of nine kids. Mamie, Molly, Dan, Tim, Peggy, Carrie, Terry, Maureen, and Bridget. 
I am smack dab in the middle of this clan with four older, the big kids, and four younger, the little kids. And the beauty of being from a big family is that there is always somebody there to do something with. But for me, I had this added benefit of the big kids. I had four people who paved the way for me in much of my life. They conquered many, many firsts. The first day of kindergarten, the first day of junior high, the first day of high school. And I got to witness all of those firsts, which took away any fear I might have about the unknown. There were many classrooms that I entered into and had a teacher smile at me and say, another Doherty. <laughs> I, had, I, I felt like I belonged. I had this feeling of being connected without really much effort on my part. I learned from my older siblings where the boundaries were. I learned from their mistakes and I learned from their successes. If I ever had a problem, I had resources that were right there at the dinner table every night. And in turn, I was expected to provide the same for the little kids. Now, that expectation was not something that our parents sat us down and spelled out for us. It was something that they demonstrated by example. And the one example that has had a lifelong impact on me is a, it involved my youngest sister, Bridget. When Bridget was four or five years old, my parents were concerned that she was not developing at the same rate as the rest of us had. So they consulted with doctors who told my mom and dad, don't worry, she's fine. She it might be a little bit slow, but she has eight brothers and sisters who are doing everything for her. But my mom really wasn't satisfied with that response. And so she arranged to have Bridget evaluated at a child development center. Now, all of us kids knew that mom and dad were taking Bridget for testing. And we didn't really ask a lot of questions about what was that testing for and, and what was going to be the outcome. But we knew that this was going on for several weeks. And we also knew when it was concluded and that mom and dad had a final meeting with the people at the center. And I remember coming home from school that day and asking my mom, how did it go? What did you learn? And she told me, you know, we're just going to talk about it tonight at dinner. So that night, as we were all sitting at the dinner table, my mom explained to us that Bridget was developmentally disabled. And she barely got those words out of her mouth when one of my younger sisters just burst into tears. We had a close family friend who lived in the neighborhood, and um, this family had, in the early 60s, a child who was born with Down syndrome, Charlie. And because we had the most kids at our house in the neighborhood, our house was kind of the go-to hangout place, so Charlie, as a toddler, was around a lot. And then when he turned probably six or seven years old, his parents made a decision to institutionalize him, which unfortunately was not uncommon at the time. 
So after that happened, my mom used to go to this place where Charlie now lived, called Ridge, and visit him. And she would take all of us with him, with her, and we would go to Ridge. It was this cold, gray building that had a big fence around it. And when you walked in, you had to sign in. And it was noisy. And there were people there of all ages and all disabilities who were living in this building and being cared for by people who wore uniforms. You know, there were no moms and dads or families around. So when my younger sister heard that night at dinner that Bridget was developmentally disabled, she asked my parents through her tears, did that mean that Bridget was gonna have to go live with Charlie at Ridge? And I remember that moment. And even though this conversation happened in like just minutes of time, I remember being very confused and thinking, that never even entered my mind. But she was younger and this was how she related to the world and so this was an, a, a, an, obviously an important question. And my mom immediately said, of course not, absolutely not. Bridget is part of our family. She will always be part of our family and she will always live with us. What this means is that um, she might, or, and my mom and dad actually went on to say that, that there was nothing that our family did that was gonna change. Bridget was always gonna be included and always be brought along with everything that we normally did. The only thing that was gonna change was that Bridget was gonna go to a different school than the rest of us. And we were all gonna have to watch out for her just a little bit more. We were gonna have to help her a little bit more. And we were gonna have to take a little more time with her. And that was the case. Bridget went to a different school and we took turns taking her to the bus in the morning or meeting her bus after school. And during the summers, we spent our days at the pool, but before we could leave the house to go to the pool, we had to have a schedule so that we, were, we knew who was going to take care of Bridget, um, play with her, keep an eye on her for each hour that we were gonna be there. Bridget was never left out. And at the time, we probably complained about that. But I realize now that our parents had given us this sense of love and belonging, and then entrusted us with the responsibility to provide that for one another. It is this connectedness that has, been, has given me strength and confidence throughout my life. When I think of the people who have been mentors for me, both friends and colleagues, and colleagues who have become friends, they have consistently opened doors for me and connected me with people and experiences that I would not have been able to find by myself. Maybe the key to being a good mentor, to finding a good mentor, is to first think about what qualities and characteristics are important to you, and then be that for someone else, or look for those qualities in someone that you might like to be your mentor. Today, Bridget is a happy woman. She works at Pizza Hut. 
She skis with the Special Olympics every year. She has an active um, social life with an adult group in her community. She still lives with my mom. We lost my dad in 2002. And my mom, of course, is getting older. So our conversations inevitably turn to planning for Bridget's future. And those plans are pretty much the same as the pool schedule, just a variation on that theme. <laughs> you know, we will all pitch in and make sure that Bridget is well cared for, that she is loved, that she has a sense of being connected, and that she belongs both in our family and in the community that she lives in. Bridget is the ampersand of our family. She is the one person in our family who will always have an and. She won't ever be alone. But she is also the person that will keep all of us connected. Thank you. Here's Grace and Cullen. I uh, like to talk with my hands, too, um, but we have a prop. We have an injured shoulder, so here we are. Um, a baby was born July 2nd, 1991. They wrapped the child in pink blankets, and they gave the child the name Rachel Grace Cullen. I had a fairly average childhood. I had a mom, a dad, a younger brother by two years. But I always seemed to treat him like he was my older brother. I would follow him around. I would do things that he did. I befriended his friends. I did things specifically to see how he would respond to them. I even wore his clothes because I was very petite and I got his hand-me-downs or hand-me-ups. So I really felt like his younger brother. When I became a teenager, I had some confusing thoughts. I uh, wanted to be free. I had this very distinct feeling of wanting to be free, but I didn't know what from. It was, it was not specific to a person or a place or a thing. I just longed for freedom. It later turned into a feeling that something was missing for me. I thought maybe that it was external love, so I, I looked for external love in many ways for a long time. Finally, though, I realized what I was really missing was internal love or self-love. Um, and being faced with that, I had to realize that I had a lot of self-hate. I struggled. I would go long periods of time without showering, without changing my clothes, without looking into a mirror. I would avoid cameras and, and any videos and anything like that. Um, it was hard. I remember specifically one time I was looking into the mirror, looking right into my own eyes. I was so distraught by the way that I felt about myself. I wanted, I honestly wanted to change and I did not know how. So I did the only thing that I knew how to do. I, I've always known that I'm, I've been attracted to women. So I, I thought to myself, if I saw these eyes on someone else, 
I would be attracted to them. If I saw this smile on someone else, I would be attracted to them. I went on and on through my whole body, trying so hard to convince myself that that was self-love. Really, it was a Band-Aid that I had to reapply often, and it seemed to get harder the more I tried to reapply it. I basically just embraced the fact that I would have to live with hating myself, that it was going to be a part of me. 2017 was a really hard year for me. I had a lot of losses. I feel like for some of that time, I lost myself in grief. There have been three generations of men in my family who have taken their lives due to suicide. I've known that from a young age. And from a young age, I knew that I would be the next, that I would be the fourth generation. I did not want it to be that way, but I knew. So in 2017, I self-admitted myself into a mental hospital three different times. Um, and uh, because I needed the help. And when they asked me, why are you here? What is, what is going on in your life? I told them that I was tired. I was so tired of putting on a mask, of smiling all the time, of being okay for everyone, of everyone's expectations for me. And it didn't even feel like it was from them. If I knew that it came from me, that I put others' expectations on myself. I was just tired. This summer, I moved back to Idaho Falls. In October, there was a PSA. You may have seen it. It involved a family celebrating Halloween. There was a mother, a father, a daughter, and a son. The commercial showed them working on um, carving pumpkins, and they just looked so happy and so wonderful and cohesive. And then it showed the, uh, a still of the finished pumpkins. Uh, one of them was Wonder Woman and the other was Batman. The so mom walks in and holds the costumes high, and the kids run off to get changed. And then it shows the dad looking anxious, a little bit scared. When moments ago, he was, he was so happy, he was so full of excitement. The mom stands next to him and comforts him and says, they're gonna look great. It shows them uh, trick-or-treating a little bit later and it focuses mainly on the parents. Kind of shows the kids back and, and the, the person that they're trick-or-treating, um, the, the door that they're trick-or-treating at. And the dad, again, he looks very anxious. The mom says something to the effect of, you know, they're doing, they're doing awesome. And then it goes to the end of the night, and the two kids are passed out on the floor with candy all around them, their face down. The parents carry them to their room, and at that point it reveals that the little girl was Batman, and the little boy was Wonder Woman. The dad gingerly tucks them in. He walks to the door. He goes to close the door, and he says, my heroes. And then it fades to the screen that says, be whoever you are, with the hashtag, my heroes. It 
touched me so deeply. I, I figured that it would. I mean, I've been in the LGBTQIA scene in the circles uh, my whole life. Um, I, I'm a very sensitive and emotional person, so it made sense that it would touch me, absolutely. But it lingered, it's, it stayed with me. It wouldn't leave me. So it, it really forced me to do some uh, self-reflecting and uh, that can also be very hard. So I looked on YouTube, I looked on Google, I researched gender and sexuality and everything, everything I could possibly think of to my heart's extent because I, it just wouldn't leave me. I have a really good friend in Boise. His name is Josh. He's very important to me. When I moved from Boise, we downloaded the app Marco Polo. For those of you who don't know, it is a video app where you are able to record messages to each other um, at your own convenience, and then they can watch it whenever and reply whenever. And in fact, as you're making the video, they can watch it. They don't respond, it's not live back and forth, but they're able to watch it. So it's, it's a very um, nice way to have communication and connectedness, even if you can't really be together. So I contacted my friend Josh and I told him that I was struggling, that I wanted to go by he, him, that I wanted to figure out what was going on with me. Immediately, he used those pronouns. Immediately, he asked me, what name, if any, are you thinking of? And then I told him, I was born Rachel Grace Cullen, the, the name Grace was a family name, it was passed down, and it meant a lot to me. So I decided that Grayson was the name for me because it brought who I was into who I am. Immediately he started calling me Grayson. He changed my name in his phone. It felt so good. He had had a nickname for me, um, but since my name had changed, he decided that he wanted to change my nickname. The first time he called me little brother, I had no idea I could feel so much validation. It touched me so deeply. On October 22nd, 2017, Grayson Cullen was born. In many ways, I let Rachel go. But in many other ways, I accepted her more than I ever had. And I am finally free. Thank you for listening. Story Story Night is brought to you by our story party, Amy Moran, Karis Kimball, Hannah Mae Schaefer, Karen Moore, Bob Haycock, Marnie Ellis, and me, Jody Eichelberger. We receive support from the Boise Arts and History Department. Thank you to our media sponsor, Radio Boise, our season sponsor, Pettit Group Real Estate, and the Ampersand Show sponsor, the Idaho Women Lawyers. The simulcast with Idaho Falls was supported by the Idaho Commission on the Arts and the National Endowment for the Arts. 
Podcast production is by Stephen Baltasare. Our theme song was composed by Dan Costello, and our musical guests were Dan Costello and Ned Evett. Support this storied program, get tickets to our live show, and stay tuned at www.storystorynight.org or on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Story Story Night. 